stay hungry, stay foolish. Welcome back to part three of the episode with Guy Perlmutter, part of the exponential series here on the Innovation Show, where we share these exponentially changing technologies that are adapting and evolving and intertwining to bring us new decisions, new technologies, new in innovations across the planet, some of which can save us from ourselves. The Innovation Show is brought to you proudly by Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance products and services empowering businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move money with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. It is a pleasure to welcome back the author of Present Future, Business Science and the Deep Tech Revolution, Guy Perlmutter. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Aiden. It's great to be back. I'm really enjoying it. and I'm getting so much from the content. A reminder for audience, two copies back there. One is up for grabs for you. Just sign up to the innovation show.io newsletter to be in with a chance to win that brilliant book. It goes so such a great history of these trends and showing once again that they started back in the past that we may be benefiting in the future. But we have been evolving from day dot from day zero on this planet. So I thought we'd start Guy with fintech and cryptocurrencies. It's something we're all still trying to get our heads around. You certainly did get your head around it in this chapter. And you talk about first, the evolution of money, and I'll kick you off with a great little quote here. You say the concept of money has been part of the history of civilization ever since humans started to organize themselves around agriculture and livestock raising about 10,000 years ago. Back then the trade currency was the object of the trade itself and not an abstraction to which a certain value was attributed such as a $20 bill. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher who wrote about the nature of work and employment also said that each object should have two uses, its original use and its use in a sale or in a trade great way to get us started on the origin of finances and ultimately of value. The idea of money uh, is, is really uh, paramount to the evolution of civilization. And it's something that we realized as a species pretty early on that was necessary, right? We were not always carrying with us the objects that were not only portable, but able to be exchanged for other stuff. And also, the whole idea of uh, you being able to have a value association between stuff that you own or stuff that you want is really tough. So the, this whole concept, if you think about it, it's, it's genius of this abstraction of a standard uh, coin uh, or shell or, or piece of paper that everybody around the community would believe and would agree that is worth a specific amount and that you could ultimately make your trade and your commerce activities very standardized. So the whole idea, everything we're living ever since the 10,000 year ago uh, uh, need that arised from the agricultures and the uh, people that were starting to build communities and stop hunting and gathering and actually becoming uh, what was the real seed of modern civilization. I think that 
seed is exactly what we are living today with all those different means of payment and credit cards and debt cards and cash uh, and uh, and wire transfers and all those different ways of distributing, receiving, paying for uh, and investing, uh, you know, is basically a, a direct consequence of that need that we discovered 10,000 years ago. Until recently, the intersection between technology and finance has lived far from the public view. With the use of mathematical models and computers to price and trade assets around the world, or the development of real time control and monitoring systems for the activities of banks and stock exchanges. So that was behind the curtain. We didn't know about that. But so called fintech companies, which merge finance and technology, are rapidly changing this and delivering innovations to the day to day workings of the financial system with crowdfunding platforms, algorithm based asset recommendations, budgeting apps, mobile payments, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But also here, a really important aspect is the elimination of intermediaries in business. This is one of the clear trends of the post fourth industrial revolution. Absolutely. Uh, if you think about the world uh, as we know it, uh, pretty much ever since the dot-com bubble uh, and with uh, a, a very steady pace of uh, innovation in multiple areas that benefited from that, there are uh, very clear signs that the uh, interface between the end user and the provider of the service is actually more valuable than the service itself, because how you're going to be able to attain a specific good or service becomes the key question, because now we are getting used to have everything at our fingertips, entertainment, food, services, uh, work, everything has to be ready and attainable at any given point in time. So the idea of someone going between you and the service or the product that you want is becoming harder to believe in or to digest on a regular basis. Think about buying a home, think about buying a good, think about uh, getting a service done. And I think that in the financial world where, you know, because of the structure, the very centralized structure that these institutions uh, relied upon, where they were almost like a gateway for you to be able to reach a number of services, uh, the disintermediation of finance uh, has been something that many fintech firms have worked very hard on. And I think that there will be a time where we're going to see that pretty much every aspect of the financial world will be accessible uh, to uh, pretty much anyone. I was tempted to gloss over the world of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, but I feel that it's always so beneficial to hear somebody else's point of view on it, but also to share their explanation of this. And you do this brilliantly in the book. I'll set you up with some stats that you share in the book. You say in December 2012, one Bitcoin was worth around $13. Three years later, in December 2015, the price was close to $430. By 2017, it topped $17,000. And I'll let you tell our audience what it's worth today for those people who had invested in it. Because in mid 2020, around 18.5 million Bitcoins were in circulation. 
and approximately 2.5 million bitcoins had been mined globally. There's a lot in this question, but I'd love you to take us through your examples, your understanding of this, but also where you're seeing value by Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in the world today. Right now, uh, one Bitcoin is worth north of $40,000. But this is this is an asset class that is not for the faint of heart, right? This is an, an asset class that fluctuates dramatically. And now Bitcoin and cryptocurrency carries a lot of weight to it, right? Because you have people that the initial use cases for, for cryptocurrencies were associated with the dark web, with places where anonymity was key. But ultimately, the idea behind Bitcoin is really to democratize uh, the uh, way with which finance works, decentralize the world of finance in a way where uh, everybody has a copy of a public ledger where you know for each and every uh, handle or tag how many Bitcoins exist and that you have a finite supply of Bitcoin. So after the 21.5 million Bitcoins are fully mined, there will be no new Bitcoins. And this is kind of part of the idea of scarcity that drove the gold economy for so many years. Uh, and a lot of people tend to think about Bitcoin like also a little bit like gold, maybe like a, a hedge to inflation. And that's not been the case. And again, that's a whole other story. And I don't think we, we want to go down that rabbit hole. But the fact of the matter is that cryptocurrencies in general, they are a very interesting idea, a very interesting concept. Uh, Ethereum, which is also a very popular bit, uh, a cryptocurrency, it brings even more interesting aspects to, to play because with Ethereum, you can have what we call smart contracts embedded uh, in that particular blockchain. Uh, and there's, I think, a distinction that many people uh, are still confused about between you know, cryptocurrencies and blockchain. And I think this is a great opportunity to kind of try to make it very, very clear how they're different. You can think of the, the blockchain as the uh, infrastructure on top of which cryptocurrencies are going to work. So blockchain uh, is basically where you can keep a secure ledger that cannot be tampered with, that cannot be uh, you know, uh, 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 duplicated, that cannot be uh, 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 hacked into under normal conditions, right? It's not as if the blockchains were absolutely bulletproof. There are, you know, many examples that have caused disruption in the blockchains, and those disruptions generated what we call forks, which is you have to kind of literally create a new branch of the history of that particular blockchain because someone messed with the story of that blockchain to that date. Uh, and there are, I think, still a number of applications and uses to blockchain that far transcend the idea of cryptocurrencies that we're only now beginning uh, to examine. And one of my favorite uses of the blockchain uh, is in supply chain uh, logistics in general, where you can have authenticity, where you can create uh, some rules for 
events to take place once the contract, the smart contract is fulfilled. So there are so many, I think, benefits that, you know, global trade will be able to reap from the use of blockchain in the future. Uh, and as it comes to cryptocurrencies, we are now living, I think, uh, we're still very early in the process of understanding how the end game is going to look like. Because if you are a government, if you are a central bank, if you have a, a fiat currency, you're looking at all that and you're thinking, well, I think I can try to take some of the good features that those cryptocurrencies bring to the table and transfer them to my users or transfer them to the real world and not the virtual and digital world. And I think that this is a fascinating discussion, but I think that we have not yet seen the final outcome of how cryptocurrencies and fiat currencies are going to coexist uh, uh, in the future. Yeah, it's a bit like you were saying about uh, autonomous vehicles. When we talked about autonomous vehicles, there'll be one lane that's for the autonomous vehicles as everybody else learns to to hand themselves over this messy middle of the transitions that we see. The times like, for example, we saw the horse and carts and the cars, and then all of a sudden there's no cars. It'll be that messy middle as people more and more to move towards digital currencies. And I wanted to just highlight something here because one of the central themes of this series and indeed in your book is that you can't look at one trend in isolation. They feed each other. They feed from each other. Sometimes they power each other, AI and IoT, for example, because the blockchain has encountered many setbacks, one of which is the power that's needed to power the blockchain is quite high. And you remind us in the book that for Bitcoin's blockchain, the necessary consensus is based on the calculation of the result of the accounting ledger's hash, a process that demands a lot of power processing power, and that rewards the network's maintainers or miners with Bitcoins. It is estimated that in early 2017, the energy required to process just one Bitcoin transaction was equivalent to the consumption of 4000 credit card transactions. This puts pressure on blockchain in a world that has woken up to the importance of sustainability or ESG, environmental, social and governments. And as you know, well, in, as an investor and as an inform, informer of investors, investors are increasingly applying these non financial factors as part of their analysis to process and identify material risks and growth opportunities. I thought I'd share that because this is probably something you look at, you're kind of where are you, you know, as a startup, or when you're looking at somebody from an investment perspective, on ESG, where are you in the use of blockchain? Have you even thought about those two worlds together? I'd love you to share this because this is going to be another mini revolution. I know there's work being done in blockchains to make them more environmentally friendly or more sustainable. But it's still a challenge for the legacy blockchain. And it just shows you the speed of change that blockchain is now out of date in some ways and being reforked and reformulated, including Ethereum. You're absolutely right. There's there's a concept, and again, uh, not to, to to get too technical here, but there's a concept associated with uh, any transaction in the blockchain, any cryptocurrency transaction, that uh, for it to be validated and to be able to be inserted in the blockchain where it will remain forever and ever until the end of time, hopefully, uh, it there is a concept of the proof of work. 
right? Uh, you and every miner, that's the name that you give to people that are, you know, uh, allowing their computers to process it, to calculate the validity of a specific transaction. They have to come up with some proof of work and that will not only validate the transaction, but it will also compensate the effort of that miner uh, with some, you know, uh, small token of a specific uh, cryptocurrency. The thing with the proof of work approach is that, as you said, uh, it is very costly from an energetic standpoint. You know, you spend a lot of electricity, a lot of computing power to be able to come up with a proof of work. And of course, sure enough, as people started to point fingers to that specific uh, uh, caveat, if you will, of the whole structure, because of the time that it would take to validate the specific transaction and the energy costs and so on and so forth, uh, there is now this competing uh, uh, methodology, if you'll call proof of stake, which is far, far faster than proof of work that will, of course, consume far less energy. And that will bring the speed of those networks uh, in, in uh, at least the same ballpark as the existing traditional central point processing uh, uh, entity. So at the end of the day, this is about where and how we are going to see this particular model landing. Uh, personally, uh, I feel that we at Grids, we don't do cryptocurrency. We don't do uh, those types of uh, investments, not because we don't believe they're going to be incredibly important or powerful, but because probably due to my background in finance, uh, if I were a central bank governor, or if I were a regulator in any sort of organized market, uh, I think that I would be able to create some sort of regulatory framework uh, with relatively, no, not that many bureaucratic steps between me and the uh, end game uh, that could completely completely turn the market upside down. And hence, it's almost like if you had like this elephant in the room that at any point in time can really change the nature of, of the game. And I feel that the existing algorithms and the existing discussions about cryptocurrencies and their uses are very healthy and very important so that we can come up with a framework that allows all of us to use either fiat currencies uh, we've been hearing about the digital dollar as a project that I think it's almost inevitable. Some countries in Africa, for instance, they use digital payments, uh, uh, mobile payments, uh, not cryptocurrencies, not blockchain, but traditional digital payments as 85 plus percent of their economy. So I feel that there are far too many moving pieces and there is this big, big player in every uh, organized economy that could flip this equation tremendously. So I, I hope that we're going to see that the best of both worlds coming together uh, to make uh, the use of money practical and different from what it has been for the past few centuries. If you think about the idea of you carrying a paper and this paper is ascribed a specific value, this is literally thousands of years old. The idea that you can you know, handle this with your watch, with your phone, uh, in the future with your, you know, with your, with a retina scan, all that I think is going to come into play and be merged into a very uh, uh, frictionless process 
for you know paying for uh, uh, any types of goods or services. It's a fascinating subject and one that we'll cover in the future. We have a show coming down the line called Kings of Crypto with Jeff John Roberts, brilliant book. And I think we'll save that for there. There's loads in the book here. But I love also how you just share the history of money and you go right back into the past to bring it into the present again, as you do so well in the book. Let's move on to automation and robotics, because this is another huge trend that you again need to look at, not in isolation. It's a trend. Yes, you can make a killing there if you actually do it right. But it's a trend that's been emerging for quite some time. You share in the book a, a study between Deloitte and MHI, which is an international association for the materials, logistics and supply chain industry. And it was published in April 2017 on 900 executives in the areas of manufacturing and supply chain. The responses of 80% of the interviewees estimated that by 2022 this year, the digital supply chain will be the dominant model on the market. Of the remaining 20%, 16% stated that this is already the case. The three technologies that stood out in the study as sources of competitive advantages were predictive analysis, the IoT, and robotics and automation. The pandemic has been an accelerant for these trends, but particularly for the latter. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how our quest to find artificial entities that could autonomously carry out repetitive tasks stems right back into history. Absolutely. The whole idea, the root of the world robot means forced labor. It's all about, you know, doing something or forcing something to do a task that you really don't want to. And we have been dreaming about machines and dreaming and having nightmares about machines that perform human-like tasks or that we can relate to or interact with. And everybody has seen movies about killer robots and robots that go nuts and incredibly powerful artificial beings. But you mentioned before in this episode uh, about how those trends that we try to cover over the course of the book, they are not, they're never uh, uh, isolated from each other. And robotics is one of the best examples because we're, we're bringing machine learning, we're bringing sensors, Internet of Things, and of course, we're bringing robotics. Uh, so I go over the history of robotics and how from, from, from like ancient Greece and, 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 and China uh, up to the modern days, we have tried to create equipments and devices that ultimately were able to perform repetitive tasks for us. And the ingenuity and the creativity is just mind-blowing. Uh, and I think that the, the current... Uh, a moment that humankind is living and where all of us have heard about the problems with supply chains throughout the world are just going to be uh, a tailwind for the adoption of those very localized solutions. But the because of what I said before about, you know, our current uh, almost uh, 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 obvious and critical part of our day-to-day -day that is having things immediately or, or, or not waiting for stuff to happen, we have created a world where the delivery of goods 
and the delivery of services, they have to be flawless and they are happening. And these deliveries are happening at staggering amounts every single day. So when you think about warehouses, when you think about manufacturing lines, when you think about industries, the absence of robots, of entities that can perform repetitive tasks and increasingly sophisticated tasks uh, is one of those inevitabilities we like to talk about, right? These are trends that are not going to go anywhere. Uh, I love the idea of robots building robots. You know, some of the most complex machines in the planet are being used to design microchips that are going to power some of the most powerful machines in the planet. And this is, I think, a huge, 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 critically important part of where we're going to be seeing the economy uh, 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 trend over the next few years. And I think that there are a number of interesting and very critical aspects of what we do that are going to be affected by how fast and how deep we're going to be able to adopt and use robots in many different uh, areas. You can't think about what you were talking about there without citing the example of Amazon. We did a great episode a couple of weeks back with Robin Gaster on the power of Amazon and also the power in a negative sense sometimes on small retailers, etc. But I often think about Amazon almost like the Roman Empire where they conquered the world because they laid roads and that whole term, all roads lead to Rome, because they did this with logistics, they put these warehouses using predictive analysis, AI, etc, to understand where the best place were to buy territory to put fulfillment centers. But then in 2015, you tell us, they brought Kiva systems, the robotics company, and integrated it into Amazon. And that has just powered them ahead the whole time. And because of that, as you say, they keep setting the bar and it's impossible for anyone else to keep up with them because of their cheap access to capital, because of their long game that they kept playing. They kept changing the fulfillment centers, kept updating them. Every time they almost had it built, it was like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. They'd start all over again and everybody would be like, what are we doing? We're just making progress. But that competitive advantage and the use of Kiva systems in particular has been such an amazing step forward for them. Very hard for other people to stay up, stay up with them. You're right. And ultimately, they set the bar very high. And now I think uh, uh, the industry and, you know, not only the competitors in the retail space, but also companies like FedEx and DHL and all uh, and uh, uh, UPS, those are companies that are dealing with handling massive amounts of packages of goods that have to be delivered quickly because, you know, we're spoiled now. Consumers don't like to wait. It's everything has to be in 24 hours. Everything has to be now. Uh, I want to watch this show right now on my TV as I press this button. But one thing that I think it's interesting to mention, and I, I think brings everything that you just said home in a very elegant way, is how Amazon came up with a concept a few years ago that they patented called the zero-click purchase. And all of us were familiar with the idea of the one-click purchase, right? We go online, we kind of do our little shopping cart, we, we, we fill our shopping cart with stuff that we need, and there's one button that has all our information, payment, delivery address, everything is good. So Amazon, they decide to patent the zero-click purchase, which is basically exactly what it sounds. 
you will not click anything because Amazon will anticipate what you need and will deliver what you need to your house before you order it. And this is because they have this huge amount of data at their disposal that we're supplying, you know, what we buy, how often we buy, how often we have to restock our house with specific items and groceries and toiletries and whatever. And at the end of the day, this shows you how a very smart algorithm, great logistics, and ultimately buying power, access to cheap capital so that you can set the prices at a competitive range can create this huge moat that places Amazon uh, you know, ahead of the competition. Speaking of Amazon again, they're leading the way in many ways with drone delivery. And drones is something that you talk about next. Again, you reach into the history of this burgeoning trend and show us that it started a long time ago with the Croatian inventor Nikola Tesla. So I'd love you to share the origins of this, but also where you feel it's going. And not just from a logistics perspective, there's also the arms problem here that wars in the future, hopefully we won't have any, will be run by robots or run by drones in many cases. Yeah, we're we're seeing that right now. Uh, many conflicts are are now being fought. You know, thousands of miles apart from the actual war theater, because you have operators that can drive or pilot those drones. And very, I mean, it's very obvious for everyone that those drones can also pilot themselves. Right, the whole idea of of weapons that are self sufficient. Um, is scary to many, many uh, scientists, to many uh, executives, uh, to many entrepreneurs, because at the end of the day, we have the technology to build those. You can ultimately create a machine today that has a facial recognition algorithm where you just say, okay, you'll find this face and you'll eliminate this person. This is doable today. Uh, and uh, and I think that the uh legal issues and the ethical issues behind war, behind pulling the trigger, behind leaving an algorithm to take those decisions is something that is incredibly important and is something that will not be able to avoid. This is a discussion we'll not be able to avoid any longer. This is how wars are, 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 are fought or are going to be fought in the future. Uh, and we are seeing that one of the strategic advantages that you may have is not the actual weapons themselves, but it's the actual code that controls those weapons and the ability to hack into the enemy's weapons. And I think that this is in it by itself one of the key risks that we're living and that we would be wise to understand by going to the past and trying to relive how the whole history of drones and remote warfare begun, and we cover that uh, in the book with some detail. But I think the key issue with uh, with these uh, machines, with drones in general, uh, and they are, I think, maybe the most visible part of this technology and this change in warfare, is that the way we thought about wars, you know, uh, you know, aircraft carriers and fighter jets. Uh, and 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 battleships and tanks, we always associate those machines with incredibly skilled pilots, men and women who can you know withstand 
uh, you know, high G forces that have tremendous reflexes that are able to uh, take off and land on a, you know, a remarkably short strip of, of metal in the middle of the ocean. But if you look into the future, there's really no reason for that anymore. You can have uh, machines flying the fighter planes. You can have drones flying uh, around. You will have more autonomy and you have faster speeds for uh, missiles and for bombs. So the whole idea that people have of war or warfare in the future, I think is going to be radically different, not only in terms of the hardware, but also in terms of the tactics and the strategy. And this is something that it's incredibly important because as we know, Throughout human history, the only common thread are humans. So the idea that we're going to reach a place in the history of humankind where conflict, war, jealous, greed is going to disappear seems naive, to say the least, because humans, it's in our nature, it's in our firmware. Uh, we're programmed, we're wired, we're aggressive, uh, we tame some instincts, we know how to control some of those instincts, but we are in 2022 and we're witnessing uh, an invasion of one country, uh, uh, a sovereign country invading another sovereign country, uh, which is kind of almost bizarre if you come to think about in this day and age. So I think that this is almost like an alert for us to understand that uh, we should pay attention on how wars are going to be fought and how much autonomy we really want to give to our weapon systems because uh, they could be hacked and they could be turned against ourselves uh, really, really quickly. To emphasize that, I loved the example you give of the Cuban Missile Crisis where the very relevant story of the submarine, the Russian submarine, and the the commander of that sub, which was Vasily, Arkhipov, I don't know if I'm butchering that name, which highlights two things for me. One, the need for humans in decision making, not full autonomy for a, a, a missile being fired, for example. And two is the power of dissent or the importance of having a voice, being able to overrule the mob, essentially, which is what happened in this. So I'd love you to tell the story because this actually really brings it to home to me of why not giving full autonomy to a drone that's can fire a missile or kill people is so important. No, that's absolutely right. This Soviet Union uh, uh, Navy officer, he literally saved the world because at the height of the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, um, there was a uh, an occasion where uh, an uh, the absence of communication between this specific submarine and a specific uh, 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 battleship was interpreted by the Soviet officers on board like a, like a war uh, 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 situation where they were now isolated from uh, the rest of the squadron and they had to act because this could only mean that a disruption in the communication process meant that they were being attacked and that they had clearance to launch missiles against uh, the, the United States of America. And the this process uh, had to be unanimous. You had to have the three senior officers on board the submarine to approve of the launch of the missile. And, and the, actually the third one in terms of ranking was, uh, I think at the time he was a captain, Captain Vasily, 
And he ultimately said, uh, I do not agree with the directive that the lack of communication means uh, we were attacked before I launch a, mis- a nuclear uh, missile against the United States, which would mean you know, third world war. Uh, I want to surface. I want to try to communicate with uh, with another uh, a counterparty because I don't believe that this means uh, what we are assuming it means. And and ultimately, he was right. It was a communications failure. And with that, you know, very firm stance against his superiors, uh, he literally saved the world. And this is, I think, a, a stark warning and reminder for us that. As much as we try to forecast every single edge case in every single scenario, technology will still have its limits, right? Uh, Just recently, I was reading an article where they were talking about how can you program an, uh, an algorithm to recognize tigers? And they tried to trick the algorithm by just placing a sleeping dog next to a fence at a certain time of the day where the sun would cast a shadow on the skin of the dog that would create stripes that would ultimately be identical to the stripes you'd find on a tiger. So, and, and we talked about, I think in the first episode about, you know, the autonomous car that was driving behind a truck loaded with traffic lights moving around and blinking. So, it's virtually impossible for us to forecast every single edge case. And, and in particular, when it comes to war and decisions of life and death, uh, the, the human in the loop uh, still feels like a necessity and a safeguard for, for all of us. Yeah, love actually, my latest episode just that will launch just before this episode is with uh, Mika Zenko on a book called Red Team. And it's about red teaming in the army. So another team who goes and finds counterintelligence, it's absolutely fascinating. But to your point there, that's why they exist. They exist to find dissenting information and lean into it rather than run away from it. I think we've time for one more fit in one more chapter here. Uh, Nanotechnology. I love how you introduce this chapter. So I'm going to tee you up firstly with a definition of nanotechnology, because it, it dawned on me a lot of this information that we have, we know the terms, etc. But sometimes we're guilty of actually not going and going, hey, do you know what this means? And you do this in the book, you actually explain what it means to people, which is really, really beneficial. So you say nanotechnology deals with objects on an atomic scale measured in nanometers, or one billionth of a meter, a typical piece of paper is more than 100,000 nanometers thick, In an article published in National Geographic in June 2006, reporter Jennifer Kahn illustrated this difference between a nanometer and a meter. She said it would be equivalent to comparing a marble to the entire planet Earth. That is what nanotechnology is. That is how small it is. But you introduced this chapter here, and I'll tee this up as a way for you to bring this whichever way you like, as follows. In May 1998, a scientific article titled Recombinant Growth was published in the Quarterly Journal of Economics. Its author was Martin Weitzman, 
who earned a PhD in economics from MIT in 1967. And he suggested that the limits to the growth of an economy may not be determined by the capacity for generation of new ideas, but rather by the capacity to transform these ideas into practical and usable projects. He created a mathematical model in which elements that already existed in the economy, industries, equipment, automobiles, and laboratories, for example, were expanded and combined with innovations, thus creating a new pattern of growth and evolution based on different combinations of all these existing components. And you pose a question to us here, because I thought that quote is exactly what we're trying to do with this series. It's the combination of all these trends that is creating lots of creative destruction, loads of new opportunities, and loads of decline of old legacy players. But the question you pose is, what would happen if, rather than just developing new technologies and combining them among themselves, we decided to also manipulate and combine the basic building blocks of matter, atoms, in a manner similar to what is being done in the field of biotech with DNA. A lot in there, Guy, but I thought this would tee you up for a nice long answer about this to cover the chapter on nanotechnology. Of course, the idea behind nanotechnology, uh, and, and, and it's again, it's a fascinating field with, that holds a lot of promise. And I think we're going to see over the next decade uh, incredible advances in this particular field is that what if we could uh, create or manipulate the very basic building blocks of matter uh, to our liking? Uh, so we're not going into anything uh, that has to do with uh, quantum mechanics. That's for another chapter on quantum computing. Uh, we're going to go about the actual atoms that we understand that make everything around us. And if you think about the idea that uh, technology or computer science deals with bits and bytes, 3D printing deals with atoms, right? You transform those bits and bytes into an object, a solid object. Biotechnology takes bits and bytes, applies them to a specific piece of DNA or genome and creates or try to create diagnostics or therapeutics or new drugs. Nanotechnology is basically you trying to pick on matter and trying to figure out what if I could manipulate this matter at its most basic scale and create alternative uses for it. So what if I can create specific uses for matter that I can not only uh, model, but I can also put in a scale that I can ultimately insert in a living creature to do my bidding. And that's the idea. Uh, very, you know, uh, uh, very uh, interestingly uh, that... Uh, that we saw in Fantastic Voyage, right? That's a movie that talked about, you know, a small spaceship that was miniaturized and placed in the bloodstream of a patient in order to uh, save his or her life. And 
we are starting to get a glimpse of how nanotechnology could ultimately achieve these types of goals. There have been already uh, robots that were produced using nanotechnology where the robot, the whole robot is just a few atoms thick. It, you build a robot, uh, a working engine that every moving part is one atom. And the possibilities uh, of having uh, nanomachines that can ultimately penetrate a living cell are just mind-blowing because think about the idea instead of uh, using uh, chemotherapy as your standard uh, treatment for cancer, you can say, okay, this is the payload. This is the medicine I want to deliver, but I want to deliver specifically to that address. Wherever there's a tumor, I want to preserve this, the, the, the healthy tissues, I have to preserve the healthy organs. I just want to attack that tumor. And nanotechnology is small enough to be able to penetrate not only cells, but the blood-brain barrier. And ultimately, you can put that cargo, that payload within a specific uh, environment and deliver that into the bloodstream of a patient and have a very efficient and almost zero toxicity associated with it. So at the end of the day, nanotechnology, again, is where we're going to see a, a number of trends overlapping and we're going to be able to see the technology being used for our health, for building better materials, for having, for instance, agents inspecting the uh, safety of bridges and railways and roads, because you'll be able to ultimately uh, inject those agents within those uh, materials and evaluate and ultimately fix if there are gaps or structural issues, and we'll be able to get uh, uh, sensors that are going to become smaller and smaller that are going to be able to deliver to us some information in real time. So I really believe that the uh, the nanotechnology uh, possibilities with graphene and all those new materials that are lighter than many of the existing uh, metals you can think of and stronger than steel and many other uh, composites, uh, I think we're just starting to glimpse what the possibilities for our future these uh, these materials and this whole area of research uh, are going to bring. And again, I want to remind our audience, think of that when it combines with maybe AIs ch telling it what to program, what to actually create using 3D printing to create nanotechnology. We have no idea how they're all going to collide. And it's absolutely fascinating. And it's always such a pleasure, Guy, to talk to you, to inform us with this new information to help us make better decisions, whether it be for what we're going to do in the future, maybe it's for our children, maybe it's what we invest in, or maybe what industry that we work in. But the biggest thing I learned from all this is that you need to be open and flexible in your thinking to be able to go where the winds blow you, go with the flow, literally, to understand the, the learning and the unlearning of the old ways is a predominant skill that comes out from all this. I'll ask you once again, in case there's people joining us for the first time, where can people find you to find out more about your work? You do keynotes, workshops, but also for Grids Capital, where can they find you? Thanks, Aiden. I think the easiest way is just look for me uh, 
at either LinkedIn or Twitter. You know, I'm at Guy Perlmuter. It's very easy to find me. And then you'll find uh, ways to connect or presentfuturebook.com where uh, the book has a splash page and uh, also uh, very easy to connect. Awesome. And don't forget, I have a copy up for grabs. One of those behind me is up for grabs for you. But if you do buy a copy of Guy's book, remember, leave a review on Amazon. It really helps the author bumps it up this algorithmic world that we live in as well. So Guy, always a great pleasure author of present future, business science and the deep tech revolution. Guy Perlmuter, thank you for joining us for episode three. Thanks again for having me, Aidan. The Innovation Show is brought to you proudly by Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance products and services, empowering businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move money with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com.